Now, speaking of amazing things, open your Bibles to the book of First uh, John. You guys ready to dive into First John? This is going to be so much fun. And if you haven't been with us for the past couple weeks and knowing that this was right around the corner, we're going to be doing uh, the book of First John. We've done this a little bit, but probably not to this full intent before. We're going to take um, and just read through line by line the entire book. We're going to go all the way through five chapters of the book of First John. And we're going to do that for a few reasons, and uh, which I'm going to let you guys in on for a second. But what I really want you to do is as we gather together corporately and we read through this book publicly, what I want you to do is, is also take the book of 1 John and read through it individually in your private times. Make sure that you go whenever you spend some time with Jesus in the morning, in the afternoon, evening, all those times. If you don't have a, a, a particular set-aside time, you ha- actually hang out with Jesus Make one. Just just make it a meeting that you're never going to miss. Open up the first John and then just travel along as a church with us. Today we're only going to go through the first four verses because it's going to be really good. I can say that because it's not my message. This is going to be really good. And and then uh, next week we're going to do the same thing. We're going to get through as many verses as we can. But what I want you to do is just kind of travel through. Read the whole thing 16 times. And I promise you, when you come back on Sunday, the message is going to be so much better because of it. You're going to be familiar with the text. God's going to be already feeding you in your own personal time. God bless you. And so that we can actually go through this together. You guys ready? I said, are you ready? Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I sit down with people individually, especially the ones I haven't really met before and I'm having a meeting with them, I always like to lay out my expectations. Hey, here's what I'm hoping to get out of the meeting or our time together. And I also ask the same question from the person sitting right across from me. So I want to do the same thing in the respect of our time. I want to just lay it out. My hope as your pastor, my three expectations as we travel all the way through this particular series, not just today, but five chapters. This is an amazing time for you to get out your journal and write a lot of stuff down because there's going to be so much good stuff for you to get in here. So here's my three expectations for the book of First John. One, first and foremost, this is my hope. This is my prayer. And it's also one of the main points why John writes. It's so that you would experience a deeper a richer, a fullness of God's love. I want you to experience, I mean, more than you ever have, this particular idea of a deeper and a richer experience of God's love for you. Amen? Now, before we rush off to two and three, can you just, can you just hang out with that right there? A deeper experience of God's love for you. Note what I didn't say. I didn't say a deeper knowledge of God's love. I'm not trying to uh, stimulate your mind. I'm not trying to fill up your, your, your cognitive data with uh, doctrine and, and theology. What I really want you to go through is as we read through God's word, not just in First John, but anywhere, as you read through, I really hope my prayer is for you is that you experience a deeper revelation, a deeper knowing, a richer, more fuller experience of God's love for you in Jesus' name. Amen? <clears throat> Second one is from that love oh, actually overflows into your relationship with other people. Uh, that's your marriage, that's your friends, that's your neighbors, your, your physical neighbors, and also just your acquaintances. If you're familiar with our, our church, we call that your city. Everybody in your city, that's your relationships. It's where you get coffee. It's where you work. It's where, what you do in your spare time. And whatever that context is, that relationship, we hope out of First John that the love of God that he pours in you through his truth, then you get to pour out in your place of influence, in your city, wherever you are. 
So that there is a direct correlation. It's not a broken one, but it's a direct correlation between that vertical relationship and the horizontal one. Your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. Throughout the five chapters of 1 John, this is exactly what John writes. He said, listen, I don't want you to separate the two. I don't want you to, I don't want you to think about your life in compartments because it's not. It's your relationship with God and it overflows to your relationship with other people. I can let you know if you have a relationship with God and how that's going based on your relationship with other people. All I have to do is ask how your marriage is going. How's your relationship with your friends? Is there forgiveness? Is there patience? Is there love? Do you serve one another? Do you contribute? Because if you do, that's an overflow of your relationship with God. Now, a lot of people will just compartmentalize. Well, my time with God's really good, but the people that I deal with are really not so awesome. My boss, my coworkers, my marriage, and my kids, and everybody else. And, and they, then they start separating the two. I'm just letting you know that you can't separate them. In the book of 1 John, that's what he's going to write. You can't separate the two. The love that God has given you needs to overflow in your relationship with God. Amen? Now, the third is a little more practical. It's, I, and don't be offended by this, but I, I want to actually go through and give you some basics of how to read the Bible. Because some of us um, don't really like books and we don't like reading. And, and, and the book of the Bible is unlike any other book. And I want to actually teach you some tools and practically how to run through this corporately so that when you get in there individually, you have some tools to actually allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That word in the parentheses is hermeneutics. You want to say that with me? Hermeneutics. Come on, say it one more time. Hermeneutics. And that's just a study and an interpretation of Scripture. Meaning, do you want to ever find out what one verse, what one word, what one idea, what one paragraph says? You have to allow the clarification of that to come from a clarification of other Scriptures. What you can't do is to determine what's going on in 1 John from Google. Man, I really love that First John verse. I don't even know what it means. What do you do? You hop online, you get on your phone, Google, tell me what First John blah, blah, blah means. And then all of a sudden it's going to pull up a lot of things. Now, there are probably some good stuff. But what I'm saying is allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture is a third basis of my expectation for you. I don't want you to be a, a scholar or a professor. I just want you to have a better understanding of the love letters that Jesus has written just to you. Ah, that's it. Amen. Okay, now, without further ado, let me just give you guys some framework, and, and, and the word I'm going to use is context and background. Context and background. If you are a part of the family uh, for the uh, past couple of years, uh, then you know that what we usually do at the very beginning of the year, and we remind you throughout it, is to get into the one-year Bible. The one-year Bible is the best, easiest way for you to read through some of the Old Testament, some of the New, and a mixture of like Psalms and Proverbs. So that every single day or whenever you get into it, you can just get a glimpse of the wholeness of who God is inside of Scripture. It's really, really fun. Now, here's my tip for not only getting into 1 John, but also when you read through. Understand the context and the background of the book that you're, you're reading. So if you're in the book of Deuteronomy, find out who it's written to. Find out who the author is. Find out what the context is. And usually what happens is there's like some sort of introduction to the beginning of your book inside of your Bible, just read through that. Just find out, hey, what does Deuteronomy say? What is Genesis about? What is the beginning? There's sort of some sort of commentary or, or introductory clause about the context and the background of the book. Read that, and then you can get into your verses. Are you following me? So 1 John, I'm going to give that. I'm going to give you the context and the background of 1 John so you can better understand who's writing, what's he writing, who's he writing it to. Amen? Three questions, not exhaustive. 
but just a beginning. Three questions to ask whenever you guys get into First John that I want to ask is, um, who is the author? It may sound a little bit obvious, but John is actually the, the, the author of First John. He wrote three short letters, First John, Second John, Third John, that are in the back of your Bible, but he also wrote the Gospel of John. And so when you look at the New Testament, this same author actually authored and pinned the John of the Gospel. That's the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's the author of that. Now, at this particular time when he wrote 1 John, the book that you and I are going to dive into, this guy has been following Jesus for some 60 years. Come on, that's amazing. Doing anything for 60 years is an accomplishment. He's been following Jesus, hanging out with him, spending time with God, planting churches, writing letters. He wrote five total letters, uh, books of the Bible inside the New Testament. John has some substantial weight to them. I mean, he is, he is one of those guys who probably has a, a gnarly looking awesome beard. Come on, somebody. And gray hair. And when he shows up, you just feel the presence of God show up just because he's been through what he's been through. This guy has walked with Jesus. And so John writes this in the context of that weight. And I think you're going to feel some of that. Second one was where, location-wise, where, were the, where was the letter written? Where was John when he actually penned this? Because that actually, you know, helps with some context. He was in Ephesus. Ephesus. That's a, that's a, a massive city in the New Testament. Historically speaking, it was the fourth largest city in the world during that time. So it was much like Southern Pines. Get in. Making sure you're listening. <clears throat> now, if you guys don't know where Ephesus was, it was modern, today it's modern-day Turkey. So it's west coast of Asia Minor, uh, right off of the, the sea. Uh, Ephesus was located right today where Turkey would be. Now, who is it written to? Last and final question. Who is it written to? Who is John actually writing to? I hope you guys are taking notes because there's going to be a whole lot of things written down here that I want you guys to go, to go back on. Who is it written to? It was written to a gathering of believers that would read it publicly. John wrote all five chapters, and so they would get it, and, and they would take John's letter, and it actually wouldn't be categorized in five chapters. It would just be one long letter. So they would get it, and they'd read it publicly. A guy like me would just get up and say, hey, do you guys remember John? Everyone's like, yeah, absolutely. Well, John wrote us a letter, and it's amazing. Let me read it to you. Starting off of verse 1, going all the way through, you guys would be edified and encouraged. And, and then some of us would, would maybe take this letter and maybe rewrite it or, or maybe get it into the context, almost like a printing press, and make sure it, it goes out. Or the, the biggest thing that would happen is you would read it publicly so that you could live it individually. Come on, you catching this? In the first generation in the church, they would, these apostles, the disciples, would, would take their letters and give it to gatherings such as this, so that they could read it publicly and live it out individually. And that's what I'm hoping you guys do at church. We, we read and we, and we talk and we preach and we proclaim God's truth publicly so that you can live it individually. Amen? If you get nothing out of the message, you can just get that right there. The purpose of church, for you to come in and not be stimulated with your mind, not be stimulated with your ears, not have an emotional uh, occurrence, but you can actually be changed and transformed by the Word of God to get this thing in you and then go live the word out. Faith is good, but faith without works is dead. Come on, let's not have our souls die just because we hear and we go out and we don't actually put it to root, get it deep down in our soul. 
man, this is good stuff. I just feel like I'm preaching right off the beginning. We haven't even jumped into John 1. Okay, last thing, last thing. When you look at 1 John, all five chapters, I want to summarize what John's trying to get across so you have a little bit more framework, context, and background so that when we dive into the first four verses, you get a little bit of what he's saying. John really, in an essence, is saying this. What you believe will be revealed in what you live. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. You don't have to tell me that or not. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm not talking about religious ideas here. I'm just talking about everything that you believe, you end up living out. Anything that you believe in, you'll live out. Whatever you think about most will show up in your life. I, I can, your friends, your family member, they can know if your God is work. You don't have to tell them anything because that's what you think about. That's what you check your phone. That's where you're at most of the time. Come on, somebody catching this? John's saying, let me just lay it down for you. And let me just step on some toes and get real. Because I love you. What you believe in, you'll end up living out. You don't have to tell anybody that your God is money because that's all you talk about. That's all you focus on. And that's all you go after. That's all you chase. We know that maybe at a young age, uh, some of our, our gods were relationship. That's all we did is we chased girls. We chase guys, we chase relationship, we chase affection. Now it just has a broader spectrum. Now social media can portray what your God is. What do you post about all the time? What are you liking? What are you searching for? What are you following? What's your hashtags about? When you look at this, we can tell. You don't have to tell me who your God is. John's like, what you believe in, you'll live out. Did I offend anybody yet? It's not me, it's John, okay? So don't email me, all right? In fact, let me give you my email. It's Randy Thornton at... I'm just kidding. First John chapter 1. You guys ready? Come on, I said First John chapter 1. I, lo- I, love, I love feedback. I love feedback. So here it is. Um, <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Verse 2. The life was actually made manifest, or your translation might say, the life was revealed. And we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, why why am I proclaiming it to you? So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son Jesus Christ. Did, did you catch that? Our fellowship is with each other. That's our horizontal relationship. And our fellowship is with the Father. He's making one and the same. That's our vertical relationship. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy or so that your joy may be complete. Anybody want some joy to increase in their life? Anybody want a completion of joy? Anybody have partial joy and would love to get half joy? Anybody have some half joy and need a three-fourths joy? Anybody need some three-fourths of joy? Actually just need to overflow with 100% overflowing soul, overflowing with your mind. Come on, somebody. Anybody just need some joy? God, I just need some unconditional, not happiness, but joy. Joy rides through the storm. Joy knows that there's hope. Joy finds a purpose in the trials. We need some joy that doesn't come from our circumstances, but comes from an anchor of our soul that's a hope in Jesus. So I'm writing these things, John says, so that your joy won't be fickle and won't be partial and won't be a small percentage so that it will be 
complete. As we read through here, let's just take it apart. At the very beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, that which was from the beginning. God's gospel here in 1 John actually acquaints really closely to how he intros the gospel of John. Check this out. Just keep that up there. That which was from the beginning. That's the first verse. Now, if you go back to the, the gospel of John, this is what it says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning, he says, in the gospel of John. Then he writes his first John. What, what, what's he doing? Is he being redundant? No, no. He's, he's setting up how he's beginning his letter which is really to say, this is not my letter. This is a portrait and a story about a guy who I have touched, seen, heard, observed, looked at, listened to. And I'm letting you know, that man was from the beginning. What's he saying? In the beginning was God. And the world was formless and void. Does that ring a bell? In the beginning, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, John is saying, my God, the one that I saw, the one that I heard, the one I listened to, the one I touched, Jesus. John is like, let me just put all my cards on the table. Jesus, the carpenter, the mere human, he's God. He is setting up a divine orchestration of, in the beginning was my God, before time was my God. And it was the same God who sent the sun down. I saw face to face. He chose me to be one of the 12. He brought me in as his inner three. I wrote a book about him called the Gospel of John, but it doesn't change some 60 years later. In the beginning, Jesus is still here. He's still reigning because he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Come on, church, you getting this? This is amazing. John is just outright saying, Jesus is God. I don't know who he is in your life, but John's like, this is who he is in my life. Choose today who you shall serve, but for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Verse 2, we go down and we see this language starting to pick up steam. And I I want you to catch the plural weight in which John writes his gospel. He, he writes it individually. John here, he writes this particular letter individually, but the first four verses, he actually uses language of we and our and us. And I'm, we're going to pick it up here in a second. But he only does it in the first four verses because the rest of his letter, he writes uh, me and you. I am writing this to you. I and you. And it's like an individual letter. But at the very beginning, he writes it in a plural type language. Check it out. That which was from the beginning, which who? We have heard. Check it out. Which we have seen with our eyes. We looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word that was made manifest. We have seen it. We testified to it. We proclaim to the eternal life. Which was the Father was made manifest to us. Verse 3. Which we have seen. We, not just me. We have seen. We have heard and proclaimed also to you so that you may have fellowship with who? Us, a collection of believers, a community, a family, a small group, people that actually know your name and you know them. They know how you're doing and you know how they're doing. Indeed, our fellowship is not just with one another, but it's also with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things. John wrote it, but he's saying we. Why is he saying that? Because if you're writing your notes down, write this down. We is stronger than me. When you're in a collection of people, when you're in a community, 
you get a better acknowledgement of who God is. Because you get to recognize God's not just working in my life. He's working in your life. And he's using your encouragement for my valley that I'm walking through. He's letting you lift me up. Circumstantially, whenever we're in community and we're in small group and we're in this family together, we get a bitter, bigger and better view of who God is. John is saying, I personally have seen, touched, and looked upon. And I'm just letting you know, it's not just me. It's a collection of hundreds at this time, thousands of believers. And we're all on the same page. This Jesus, he did raise from the dead. He is God. He is the prophetic fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. This is who I write about. And it's not just me. My letter comes with a whole weight of thousands of other people. We testify to that truth. What would happen in the court of law if you had hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses? Would the validity go up? That's what John's saying. Certain of this idea. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. And like I said, some versions actually say revealed. The life was revealed. We have seen it. We testified to it. We proclaim to you eternal life. And I want to stop right there because it, it says something monumental here. John is saying, concerning the word of life, the life, which is Jesus, the word of God, which is Jesus, has made manifest or it has been revealed to you. Note that John didn't say you sought it out so much that your mind logically put these things together. He said it, to you it had been made obvious. It had been made manifest. It had been revealed, meaning the type of language he uses is it was hidden. It was hidden at one point in time, but God pulled back the curtains and let you see what was really going on. Anybody have that inside scripture? Come on, anybody have that when they come to church? Anybody get a perspective change when they're, when they're with God? I don't know if I've established this, but I love feedback. So when I ask you a question, I'd, amen, shaking of the hand. Really anything to let me know you're alive would be great at this particular time. Have you ever had just an insight, something that you, that you've seen that was there the entire time, but then all of a sudden it was like the covering just kind of came off and you're like, holy smack, daddy in the middle, I cannot believe that has always been there. And then, then all of a sudden you're in conversations and it changed the way you see people. And then all, all of a sudden it changed the way you see scripture. It changed the way you worship. It changes the way you walk. That's God's laying down truths. That's why he speaks in parables. Here's a story for you. Oh, that's what that meant. That's why his disciples were like, hey, Jesus, great preaching today. <clears throat> what were you talking about? So, so that you can actually understand, know, and believe. Know and believe. This, this has to be, this has to be revealed to you. Like Paul, from Saul to Paul, the scales of your eyes have to be taken off. Come on, somebody. Like the conversation that Peter had with Jesus and all the disciples, Jesus brought them in and said, hey, listen, there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of talk out there. Who, who do they say that I am? They think you're John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. Let me just stop right here, separate you from the crowds, give me my 12. And he looks at the disciples, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, Peter just goes ahead and, hey, I got you. I, I know who you are. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're our Lord. 
You are the fulfillment of the Messianic law of the Old Testament. You are God. That's what he says. And then listen, listen to the language. Jesus then says, flesh and blood, logic, data, didn't reveal that to you. But my Father in heaven, same, same idea, revealed, uncovered this to you. Come on, you catching this? And so can I just, can I give you something? If you're writing notes, I want you to write this down. Whenever you go through scripture, the, the best question that you can ask, God, reveal to me who you are in your word. What I didn't say is, is reveal exactly why you wrote this in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and uh, exactly why the root language here uh, has a preposition. And Don't do that. <laughs> Ask the question. God, as I'm reading through here, I want you to unveil my eyes. <laughs> Come on. I want the eyes of my heart to see who it is that you really are trying to show me to be as I read through your word. Reveal it to me. Just like Proverbs 25 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to see it revealed. That's what God wants to do to you. Inside of his word, inside of your marriage, he wants to give you insight. It's always been there. He just kind of wants to uncover, unveil your eyes to be revealed. Now, when you look at all four verses here that we just read, verse 1 through 4, when you look here you can't help but acknowledge that John has this absolutely convincing language. And I want to highlight it for you. Personal firsthand language of something that he is convinced over. Check it out. I think they're going to be bolded right here for you. Uh, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Check out these bolded language. Uh, Let's just run through them really quick. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen, looked upon, touched. Go to verse number two. Seen, verse number three. And then he says it again, seen and heard. John's saying, I've seen, I've heard, I've touched, I've looked upon. I mean, isn't that a bit redundant? Or is it certain? When John writes this, it's almost like the focus of his first four verses, this foundational beginning actually gets passed off to the reader. John saying, I am utterly convinced without a shadow of a doubt of who Jesus is. I have seen, I've heard, I've listened to, I've touched. He's been right in front of me. But let me just put the letter down and ask you one of the most important questions of your entire life. What are you convinced of? I mean, what are you absolutely convinced of? What have you seen? What have you touched? What are you certain about. John almost shifts the responsibility and says, this isn't a letter about me. It's a letter about the reader. I want to know, what are you fully, I'm not talking about what are you, what are you convinced over and certain over of religious things. No, no, I'm just talking about in life. What are you certain about in life? What do you know for sure in life? What are you holding on to in your existence of the day to day? John says, I know what I'm convinced of. I've been following Jesus for 60 years. I'm convinced of this. Fully, outright convinced. So much so that I'd give my entire life for it. Would you give your life for Jesus? Would you go to the extent, not just that John went, but would you be fully convinced to lay down your life for his? Last time I checked, 
the word sacrifice was actually to give up something greater in exchange for something lesser. That would be a sacrifice. If I gave away a hundred dollars, I'll give away a hundred dollars just to gain ten. That's a sacrifice. That's not what God's asking you to do. He's actually asking you to give up your ten dollar life in exchange for a million dollar life that he says is life abundantly. You can't live it on your own. But you just have to ask the question, wrestle with it. Who do you say that Jesus is and what are you convinced of? And John writes it four, four, four verses. I'm going to lay it back on you. Not out of redundancy, but just out of certainty. You've got to answer that. <clears throat> I want to I end our time actually talking about these four, these, uh, four verses as John is the author. And um, I want to go back and correlate 1 John and actually tie in the gospel of John. As I mentioned earlier, he's the same author. He wrote the gospel of John. And in there, I don't know if you've ever been familiar with this, but um, throughout his gospel, John actually writes about himself in an identity that uses not his name, but he says this. He writes, um, hey, the disciples and Jesus and all of us were doing this. Uh, and then he writes to himself, and the one whom Jesus loved. And he writes about himself in the Gospel of John, the one whom Jesus loved. Are you guys familiar with this? If not, I'm not lying to you. It's in there. Just go back and check it out. I'm not making this stuff up. Gospel of John, John writes, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, if you're, if you're reading through there, you're kind of thinking, well, that's some odd language. Because if you were writing a book uh, in which you were the first-hand eyewitness account, you probably would write I, or your name, or me. <laughs> you know, some, some very obvious statements to say, I know who wrote it. You, you did, because you're, you're actually beckoning that account. But he actually goes another step, and he says, um, he didn't say me, he didn't say John, he actually just writes, the, the one whom Jesus loves. Now, at first glance, you and I could, you know, read through this and be like, what, what arrogance John actually writes to say, wow, John, way to go. The only gospel this actually comes up in is yours, and you write about yourself, I'm the one who Jesus loves. You know, like, he could come across like that, but you, you got to catch his heart. That's what I want to make sure that we pause right here. In First John, these, four, these first four verses you catch his heart. He writes not about himself. He writes about Jesus. He's writing about an experience of God's love that John has personally come to grips with. And he writes in the gospel of John, the one whom Jesus loves is because God loves everybody. God loves the disciples radically. God loves you intensely, unconditionally. But why is it that in worship, some people worship harder than others? Why is it that some people get different things out of the Bible? Why is it that other people in the same city, in the same group, in the same church, can have a deeper, richer fullness of God's experience, their relationship, than other people? Why is that? And it's this fact right here. I believe it's because John had a revelation of how much God actually loved him. I don't think he was writing with pride. I think he was writing in a deep sense of humility. Listen, if you need to know who wrote this, I guess I'll, I'll put it in there. But the fact of the matter is, 
I'm a nobody, and I got chose, and I'm loved. I'm part of Jesus' 12 and his three. I'm his son. And my identity, if you really want to know who I am, I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm cared for. I'm valued. I'm chosen. I'm redeemed. I'm restored. I'm a son. I'm a light. I have a destiny. I have a hope. I have blessings and promises that are all mine because of Jesus' work. There is an identity that John writes with, and it's simply and humbly, I'm loved. And I want to make this really, really clear as we go through 1 John, because that's what he hopes for for you, that you encounter the riches that go far beyond your sin, the way and the years that you've ran away from God, how you've disrespected one another and disrespected God. God's like, my love is greater than that. I forgive you. And that work is already done. You are so right in my eyes. In fact, you're the apple of my eye, God says. You're my beloved son, my beloved daughter. In you, I'm so pleased. I'm proud of you. And you haven't done anything to prove my love. Because God's love is totally different. And John writes this. And he says, I want you to get a deeper and a richer experience of God's love. Because that's exactly what I've tasted. I've tasted and I've seen that God is good. And I want you to get this. Foundationally, the first four verses, that's what I'm going to write about. I've seen it, but I want you to see it. I've heard it. I want you to hear it. I've experienced, but I want you to experience. Church, will you let God love on you? Wash your feet. Wash away your sin. Wash away your shame. Will you let God love on you unconditionally so that you can say, I'm loved. I'm loved. There's an author by the name of Robert Frost. I love one of his quotes. He says, if there's no tears in the author, there's going to be no tears in the reader. And I believe John writes the same idea. My hope for you is that you experience God's love and it's coming from a guy who is loved. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? Will you receive it? Will you receive it?